Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about the current worth of a penny. We remark on the difficulty of using your home equity when you're old. We ponder the differences between cage-free, organic, and other egg attributes. We present a quick history of the American penny, and we reminisce about penny candy and other childhood treats. The Old Dog's conversation is with Mary Harper, social worker, author, activist, and daughter of parents who were both blind. Stay with us. Well, Paul, here we are again, wondering what's on your mind. Yes, you keep wondering about that, Jim. Today, it's, there's a, it's a piece in our episode about the lowly penny, hmm. how it costs more to produce a penny uh, than it, it's actually worth. It takes about uh, two, uh, two cents to make a one-cent piece. Oh, it sounds like maybe the Army is coining the pennies then. It, it could be. Uh, and so that, that got me thinking, you know, uh, yeah, maybe the penny is obsolete, but you know what? I think all change may be obsolete. Right. It, it, it loads down your pockets. Mm-hmm. It goes in a jar at the end of the day, and then you have to take that, lug that jar over to uh, uh, a supermarket where they have a coin machine and change it out. I'm just wondering, should we won't round everything to the nearest dollar? Uh, and as a matter of fact, when was the last time you spent a buck on anything? Uh, uh, I don't want to go there, Jim. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's private, huh? <laughs> okay. So well, anyway, uh, it, it is. It, they're heavy. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, they're worthless, <laughs> like dollar coins. Do you ever use dollar coins? No, I used to collect them, and then I lost them all, and I've probably lost, you know, like thousands of dollars. Eighteen seventy-eight. How Silver do you dollar. lose coins? You like walk around with holes in your pocket or, or something what? like that. They're very heavy. So what would be the downside? If you, you and I are now kings of the world, mm-hmm. what would be the downside if we said no more coins? Well, I can think everything of off. one thing in particular is that I couldn't patronize a gumball machine anymore. And that would be a sad thing. Oh, really? Yeah. How, how often do you see gumball machines? Oh, well, you know, when I go to the mall, for example, in the food court, there's usually a gumball machine. Well, I think there, there was a time when coinage was helpful. Your gumball machine is a good example. What about a paid telephone? You paid need telephone? A, All right. What uh, else? What else? But the utility for coins uh, has gone out. You don't see a lot of things now that require inserting a coin it is so yeah i i think i think we should abolish change can you see any downside to not having coins well i'll tell you one thing paul that i promise i will do the next time i visit rome i'm going to have three coins in my pocket so i can throw them in the trevi fountain because that's what you do okay well not pennies because they're worthless and your wishes would probably be worthless too right you know so I think I, I rest my case. I think I've made a very good case. And, you know, possibly the next thing to go is paper money. Yeah. But at any rate, I will not miss uh, coinage in my pocket. Uh, the only thing they did was hold the lint down. 
A subtle form of age discrimination makes it difficult for seniors to access the equity in their homes. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for April 8th, 2023. Much of a senior's wealth is tied up in real estate. Among homeowners aged 65 to 74, home equity represented about 47% of their net worth in 2019. Among those over 75, it was 55%. But it is increasingly difficult for a senior to access that equity. Molly Stewart is 60 years old and a lawyer. Due to the stress of COVID, she retired early. Now, at the time, she had a 30-year work history and a credit rating above 800. She had a rental property that was paid off and a home with about $400,000 of equity. Hoping to give herself some financial breathing room, she tried to refinance her three-bedroom home on an acre of land near Sacramento. Her mortgage application was denied because she was retired and didn't have enough income. Although the Federal Equal Credit Opportunity Act prohibits discrimination because of age, lenders are allowed to consider age if they think it is pertinent to creditworthiness. Lenders care about reduced income after retirement. It affects the debt-to-income ratio, an important metric to bankers. They're also concerned about older lenders' mortality risk. If the property winds up in foreclosure after a death, the bank faces legal action. Policy changes could reduce these age-related barriers, but these assessment changes would involve a collective effort involving commercial lenders and the various federal agencies involved with lending. At our age, we shouldn't hold our breath waiting for collaboration in these divisive times. If you are confused by the variety of seemingly healthy labels applied to eggs, and who isn't, maybe we can help clarify the egg-splicit jargon. This pod nugget is from Consumer Reports for April 17, 2023. For example, what is the difference between cage-free and free-range eggs? Right. Well, cage-free simply means the chickens are not kept in cages, but they can still be kept indoors and crowded together. So free-range means the hens aren't caged and they have outdoor access, but that outdoor space could be quite small. But the combination of free-range and either the certified humane or American humane certified labels on the carton means the birds have a spacious outdoor run. Now, the terms natural and organic are not synonymous. Natural on the carton has no additional meaning. Organic on the carton means the laying hens were fed grains without synthetic pesticides or GMOs. The birds cannot be raised in cages or given antibiotics. They also must have outdoor access. No hormones is a meaningless label since chickens that produce eggs or are sold for meat cannot be given hormones by law. Farm fresh is another term that is meaningless. It only implies that the eggs have never been frozen. And just to add to the confusion, pasture-raised is also meaningless, unless it has the certified humane or the American humane certified labels. Now, this would mean that the chickens have access to a pasture with space to act naturally, like pecking for seeds and insects. To simplify matters, the addition of certified humane or American humane certified labels on the egg carton means the hens have been treated humanely. All the other labels have limited meaning. To buy or not to buy is an existential question. 
Well, that was a farm fresh comment. Yeah, I'm going to look carefully at the label before I buy these expensive eggs I've been getting. Exactly. <laughs> the lowly penny has little value and no respect as a coin. It's the filler in a coin jar. While this value continues to shrink, its history is worth noting. This pod nugget is from the Interesting Facts website. The first penny was designed by Benjamin Franklin. It was called the Fugio Penny and was manufactured in 1787, predating the penny from the U.S. Mint by several years. One side of the coin featured the cautionary words, Mind Your Business. The penny was not the least valuable American coin. From 1793 to 1857, the U.S. Mint produced a half-cent coin. The coin was discontinued due to its perceived lack of value, although today an uncirculated half-cent could be worth as much as $100,000. In 1909, the coin underwent a visual change. President Theodore Roosevelt decided to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's 100th birthday by putting his face on the one-cent coin. The Lincoln penny was the first coin to feature a real person. The penny costs more to make than it's worth. In 2021, it costs 2.1 cents to strike a new penny. For this reason, there is increasing support to eliminate the penny from circulation. Until that time, the best use of a penny would be to put it through a hand-cranked pressed penny machine. The resulting elongated penny is a collector's item, at least for young children. At Disneyland, you can press over 150 designs onto a stretched-out penny. How about hmm. that, Paul? You know, one of my fondest childhood memories was going to the corner store and buying a quarter's worth of candy. It actually was a decent haul in a time when there was still penny candy. Those days can be relived at an unusual online museum dedicated to fond memories of tooth-rotting treats. This pod nugget is from the Zocalo Public Square website. Darlene Lacey was 15 years old in 1977 when she started collecting candy wrappers. <laughs> Why just wrappers? Hey, stupid question. She ate the candy. Ah, but she saved the wrappers as a hobby. On the rare occasion that she saved the candy, she found that 20 years is the point at which candy turns into a possibly toxic and unidentifiable sticky goo. So she stuck with collecting the wrappers. Eventually, her collection became the Online Candy Wrapper Museum, where wrappers are to be enjoyed as art, nostalgia, and humor. She calls the museum her online roadside attraction, a good description for her quirky lifelong hobby. If you're interested, Google the Candy Wrapper Museum. See if you can find a favorite from your younger days. It's a work in progress, so if your preferred treat isn't there now, it may be in the future. You know, Jim, this got me thinking yeah. about my favorite candy oh, treat yeah. from years ago. Mm -hmm. And mine was Lifesavers in uh, the form of a book. You would open it up, mm -hmm. and on each side were five rolls of Lifesavers. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was intended to last a long time. We usually finished it off in a week. How about you? <laughs> well, it's sort of a toss-up between Pez, uh, which is my all-time favorite memory of candy, and Good and Plenty, which is my all-time favorite candy. Oh, and you don't want to pick and choose, huh? Not yet, no. Of yeah. course, I have access to neither at the moment. Mary Harper was born to parents who were both blind. 
As she grew, she learned how different her upbringing had been. This led her to a career as a social worker, becoming a resource specialist and psychotherapist for several companies. Her unique experiences led her to write a loving tribute to her parents, The Sound of Her Voice, My Blind Parents' Story. Mary, you produced a fascinating book about growing up with two blind parents. What was that experience like? You know, I didn't know anything was different about our family until I was elementary school or, or a little bit older. I mean, I just, it was mom and dad. I didn't think anything different about it. And then I realized, oh, maybe other families aren't quite like ours. I think one of the most frustrating thing was not having transportation to go anywhere. But nobody in my family, of course, drove when I was young. If we wanted to go somewhere, we either rode our bicycles, we walked, or we took the bus. And um, that was just the way life was back then. Uh, Mom and dad didn't really like calling friends for rides. They were very independent. So they would just get on the bus out front of the house and head on downtown, or else my dad oftentimes would walk. That was one of the more frustrating things. Like, for example, um, every September when school would start up and the kids at school would come back and talk about their vacations and like, well, we didn't get to go anywhere. I mean, my parents, we didn't do driving vacations. I didn't take a road trip till I was an adult. <laughs> um, so as a child, you know, we, we didn't do that much, but we did have a, a occasional, I can remember like one or two things that we did that was special, but it was just harder. Um, money was also an issue. Dad was always worried about money. Um, he was an attorney and later on was a judge. We never lacked for anything, but, he, you know, he was very tight with his money. As Whereas my mother would say, yeah, when we came back from shopping downtown, oh, we had a great time. Yes, it was fun. And didn't ever tell him how much we spent. We figured he'd find out soon enough. <laughs> uh, both your parents grew up blind and there there was a time lapse there but they they grew up in a period of time when uh, I think the uh, the object was to uh, teach a skill to somebody who was blind uh, so they could be uh, productive well both your parents really went beyond that low expectation do you want to talk about that yeah, it was sort of interesting doing my research for this book. Um, learned a lot about what life was like for blind children in 1920s and 30s. Uh, it's very segregated. They had the boys strictly away from the girls. They didn't want any interaction. Um, and not until they were in high school did they have very, very carefully supervised dances three times a year. But um, the, the boys had their own dining room. The girls had their dining room. The same way with playgrounds and dorms. So only in classes might they have a little bit of interaction, but not much. So that boys would be on one side of the room, my uh, mom would be on the other. And we're talking here about schools for the blind, right? There were yes. specific and, and schools for the blind. Yes. Indiana has a really, really good school for the blind. It was established, I think, in 1850 or something, a long, long time ago. So it's one of the premier schools. But back then, they were very careful about uh, how they taught the, the kids and uh, the girls were not top mobility. The boys were. The boys had a lot more freedom than the girls. I, I guess they figured the girls were just going to stay home and uh, not do anything with their lives. Uh, whereas the boys, yeah, they could take the trolley someplace downtown or. And one story in the book, I have my dad told about um, making brooms and they got permission to go out and sell them. So uh, the girls never could have done that. But the boys, okay. So the boys were taught. Uh, how to cane chairs. Um, they could, a lot of them were good musicians, um, but 
how do you make a living as a musician if you're sighted, much less if you're blind? Right. My dad said, I don't want to play in any bars. Um, or, or they can make brooms. And then the girls were taught household skills, like how to cook, simple things around the house. But because they were not expected to do anything with their lives. You know, the, your book is, is uh, also a love story of two blind people. And uh, hence the title, The Sound of Her Voice. You think this was the prime motivator for your father to go to law school? Absolutely, 100%. When you think about it, how do blind people fall in love? They can't look at someone. They can't catch their eye. They don't know what they look like. They might, if they're close enough, have a certain attraction to a certain scent if they are wearing a perfume or whatever. But they can't see each other, so it's how the voice sounds. And my dad heard my mom speak beside uh, a poem in fourth grade and fell in love with that voice back in fourth grade. Um, so, yes, he absolutely wanted to marry her as they got older. But she said, no, I will not marry you unless you can prove to me that you can support me. So dad had great incentive to uh, get an education. He knew that he couldn't make a living playing in a bar, in, in a, a piano in a bar, although he's a really good pianist. And he wasn't on a cane chair. None of those things that they trained him for, you could earn a living to support yourself, much less a family. Back then, there were not very many jobs available. Yeah, he could sell candy down at the courthouse. Then somebody, Muncie, did that. He wasn't going to do that. And his uh, older brother, who was his mentor, and there's a lot of stories about um, what they did when they were growing up. So dad decided he would, Charlie could be a lawyer, he could be a lawyer. He went to Notre Dame, became the first blind graduate of Notre Dame Law School. Amazing. And then he had a successful career as an attorney and finally as a judge. Yes. He loved being in politics. He knew so many people. And people knew him because... Everybody could see him walking down the street with his guide dog. Everybody knew my dad. And there were a lot of newspaper articles about him. He was interviewed a lot along the way, but as soon as he became city court judge, everything he said was in the newspaper. Uh, judge Mario Brown sentenced Joe Blow to five days in jail for intoxicated driving. Or, I mean, the most minor crime would be put in the paper because he had a pronouncement. So... Uh, then he, he was so entranced with politics that he was he calls himself drafted to run for mayor on the Democratic side. Uh, he ran for mayor without informing my mother. He, he came home one night and said, well, I'm running for mayor. And she said, what? She was much of an introvert, not politician's wife, and she absolutely did not want to be a mayor's wife. So when he, he won the primary and knocked out the incumbent mayor, and then he uh, lost in the general election, and my mother was so happy. Uh, let's talk about your mom. Now, this is a lady that wasn't cited, but she raised four children without any kind of help. And if you just think about changing a diaper... Yeah, imagine doing that with your eyes closed. Yes. Uh, tell us about that. Well, and also that was during the days that they were cloth diapers and she did all the washing and diapering herself. Um, and I can remember her saying she poked herself many, many times because she always put her fingers in between the diaper and the baby to make sure that she would poke herself rather than the baby. And I'm like, oh, mom. Um, and then she did all the wash, the laundry, and what was interesting about my mom is that she was told so many times, not at the school for the blind, but at home or by other relatives, you're blind, you can't do the laundry, you're blind, stay out of the kitchen, 
it's too dangerous for you to be in the kitchen. You can't do this. You can't do that. And wow, she did not give up. She just could not wait till she had her first apartment. And then she taught herself how to cook. She taught herself how to do the laundry back then with the ringer washers. I mean, she didn't have any of the modern conveniences that we have now. And most people take for granted. Think about back what life was like back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So I think she was a really strong woman and certainly strong-willed and um, persisted. She persisted. <laughs> Mary, what was your incentive to become a social worker? That was your initial uh, profession. At UVA, I majored in elementary education, and I did that for a while and loved that. And then I, I stopped teaching to uh, raise my children. And then I thought, you know... I really like helping people, I, I guess, because I always did. I, I helped my parents from day one, I think, uh, as far back as I can remember. Um, so that was sort of a natural thing. And besides the fact that I really hated math and science. So that sort of limits your uh, careers. <laughs> but um, I think it was just a natural extension of my childhood. Well, you know, they say that you compensate for the senses that are missing. Uh, would either one or both your parents know when you were getting into trouble oh. <laughs> me never get into well, your, your brothers and sisters then oh, of course. Yeah, right <laughs> well you know it's the same thing a lot of parents do if it gets too quiet you want to know what's going on and mom would come over and see what we were doing and by that i mean she reached down and feel our hands and, mary what are you doing with those scissors well i want to cut something you know the rules we had two actually very major rules one was do not leave anything on the floor. Uh, if someone could trip, mom could trip on it, and that would really not be a cool thing. So we always had to clean up after ourselves. If we were in the room on the floor, like in the living room playing, and I'd see my mom coming in, I'd say, oh, hi, mom, I'm on the floor. And she'd say, okay, and she'd walk around us. So that was not an issue. Um, but the second rule was never, ever feed the dog from the table. And my dad had seen eye dogs all the time I was growing up and way past then. So um, my sister sometimes would get in trouble by feeding the dog because if she didn't like something that we had for dinner, she would just give it to the dog. But what she didn't realize is that dad could A, feel the dog moving and B, hear the chain rattling. He knew something was going on. Yeah. 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 They had radar. Yeah, they did. They, they yeah. Uh, at some point, uh, I guess you started thinking about how different and special your family life was. And you decided to write about it. Tell us how that all came about. I knew that there were so many stories about my parents' childhood and their romance and their lives that I just didn't want it to get forgotten. Um, I have two kids of my own and two grandchildren, and I, I just wanted to make sure that it was written down so that they could have those stories. They were very special people. Uh, and let's get a little pitch in here. The let's book do is that. called the Sound of Her Voice, <laughs> right. a Blind Parent's Story. Mm -hmm. It's available on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it really is a, it's a fascinating book. It's uh, an introduction to two very unique people who didn't let their blindness hold them back from having fulfilled lives. We have uh, a rather large audience of people who are sight-challenged. Uh, some of them are totally blind, and some of them are uh, challenged enough that they can't read. Uh, yes. And so they uh, there are special radio 
channels that they can listen to online. I'm sure yeah. you that you're aware of those. Uh, and our audience uh, appreciates a story like yours. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on because I really appreciate spreading the word. Part of it, I think, is also education. It's educating people. How do you communicate with a blind person when you can't catch their eye? Uh, what do you say? Things that you can do that would be helpful. Mary, thanks. Thanks for joining us. I love this. could be a great interview. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.